Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Wednesday the 14th of October. Today, victory for free speech. The Guardian is free to report a parliamentary question about the oil company Trafigura. The Guardian's editor gives his reaction. I, I just blogged one sentence saying we, we are forbidden from reporting what's going on in Parliament and the bloggers here uh, just went berserk. Meanwhile in Parliament, MPs call for a wider debate. We have enjoyed in this House, Mr Speaker, as you know, since 1688, the privilege of being able to speak freely. We have also developed the right of British citizens to know what it is that we say in this House and have it reported freely. Also in today's show, Australian parents react angrily to government guidelines recommending no TV for under twos. One of the reasons why, why parents are reluctant to sort of accept the growing weight of scientific evidence is because we all feel quite nostalgic about our own childhood experiences of television. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk Before any of that, here's the headlines with Bill Overton. 500 more troops are being sent to Afghanistan. Gordon Brown's announcing the deployment in Parliament today, while also warning the army to make sure they have the proper equipment. He's calling on other NATO countries to send more forces. Meanwhile, the United States is still discussing a demand by the commander of the International Army in Afghanistan for 40,000 more soldiers. Backbench MPs across the parties are trying to mount a resistance fight against Thomas Legg's demands for many of them to pay back expenses. The Conservative Douglas Hogg says he's prepared to go to court, but all the party leaders have told their MPs to make the payments or lose party support. And the Liberal Democrat leader Nick Clegg's calling on the expenses auditor Sir Thomas Legg to reopen his files on some of the biggest claims, which were for mortgage and second home allowances. Postal workers in London and in cities all over Britain are going out on a one-day strike today as their union says Royal Mail have just one more day to negotiate. The Communication Workers' Union was given overwhelming support in a ballot for a national strike, which will start next week unless there's an agreement on plans to modernise. British Airways is also holding last-stage talks today over its plan to cut 1,700 cabin crew jobs. Their unions believe the company is also planning to cut a further 1,300 jobs in airline terminals. Meanwhile, the recession continues to bite on unemployment, according to the Chartered Institute of Personnel. It reports there was another sharp rise in the number of people out of work in August, and men have been hit harder than women. In particular, the Institute says almost one in five black men are now unemployed. Finally, some more cheerful news. The Reverend Sun Myung Moon has held another of his mass weddings, the largest for 10 years. He blessed more than 10,000 couples at a gathering in South Korea. Some were simply renewing their vows, but he also blessed a further 10,000 around the world. The last post, could a national strike spell the end of the Royal Mail, asked the front page of The Independent this morning as it reports the last-ditch talks and one-day local strikes across the country, including London Today. The Times and the Telegraph stick with politics after the payback, the fight back. MPs fury at expenses, watchdog, says The Times. The Telegraph reports, we won't pay up, rebels tell Brown. It says there's chaos as Labour MPs defy ruling on expenses. And Cabinet Ministers blame PM for inquiry shambles. Beside the story, it has a smiling picture of the former Speaker Michael Martin, who resigned over the expenses saga. He's in his robes being introduced to the House of Lords yesterday. And just look who's back, reads the caption. Our paper leads on its victory for free speech, as we'll be hearing shortly. The headline reads, Oil Firm Drops Bid to Gag Guardian Over MP's Question. The Red Tops stay with this week's story of the death of Boyzone singer Stephen Gately, with pictures of X Factor judge Louis Walsh. My grief for sweet Stephen, that's in the mirror. And Louis, I've lost my very, very best friend. Another of the morning headlines. There's more news and sport throughout the day on guardian.co.uk.
A gag on The Guardian reporting an MP's question in Parliament was lifted yesterday after an extraordinary explosion of activity on the internet. The Labour MP Paul Farrelly had tabled a question to the Justice Secretary Jack Straw on Monday about the Trafigura toxic waste scandal. But Kafkaesque restrictions, which had been imposed by a court, meant we couldn't tell readers which MP asked the question, who the minister was and why the gagging order was imposed. But before The Guardian had a chance to appear at the High Court to challenge the restriction, Trafigura dropped its claim. Alan Rusbridger is the editor of The Guardian. What happened on Monday was that we became aware of this parliamentary question that was down in Hansard. So we thought we'd better just write to Carter Rucks about this injunction, which was so severe we hadn't been able to tell anybody about it. Uh, and uh, we said, we assume you've got no objection to us reporting what is going on in Parliament. Uh, and got a very brisk reply from Carter Ruck saying, we absolutely do have an obje- objection, and if you report this, you'll be in contempt of the order, uh, and we need your undertakings that you're not going to report it. So that was what set our uh, alarm bells running, that we had never encountered a situation where we had been forbidden from reporting what was going on in Parliament. And then The Guardian published an extraordinary piece uh, on the website on, on Monday evening uh, in which it sort of spelt out all the things it couldn't say. It was a, you know, and that got the social networks and, and internet users, bloggers, buzzing. I mean, what do you make of, of what happened on the internet? Well, I think um, these questions of prior restraint and especially reporting of Parliament are things that people really care about. I mean, these, these are ancient privileges that... Um, uh, it's really alarming when they disappear. So um, I, I just blogged one sentence saying we, we are forbidden from reporting what's going on in Parliament, linking it to the, the Bill of Rights in the late 17th century, which guarantees the, the right to report in Parliament. And the blogosphere uh, just went berserk. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. Over, so over the last 16 hours, I've never seen this amount of activity on Twitter of people really, uh, really upset by it. Uh, you were briefing journalists on, on the latest developments when somebody uh, announced that Stephen Fry had just uh, tweeted about it. I mean, uh, this is, you know, hundreds of thousands of people really became aware of Trafigura and, and, and what happened, many more people than would have known about it if, if um, uh, Carter Ruck hadn't slapped an injunction on us. Well, as a, as, a, as a way of handling PR, it was a fantastic own goal because, as you say, I think most people... If you, you know, yesterday wouldn't have heard of this company, Traffic Era. I mean, they've done quite a lot of um, whitewash PR and they were, you know, sponsors of the British Lions Tour and so on and so forth to try and turn the PR tide. And I think this just shows if you use the law in a clumsy way, it, it's a fantastic PR own goal. But there have been a series of super injunctions, big companies using the law to silence um, reporting about what they're doing. There's still a long way to go before we can report freely on, on this sort of thing. Yeah, I think in some ways we're going backwards. Um, I mean, I, I think after thalidomide, uh, after the Pentagon Papers, we thought that the notion of prior restraint had gone. That is, you know, I, I thought there was in English law the concept of publish and be damned. So we're not going to stop you from publishing, but if you do publish, uh, then you have to be answerable for the consequences. That seems to me a, a fair situation. And what you've suddenly got now is an increase in people saying you can't publish. But these super injunctions are not only can you not publish you can't tell the world that we've got this injunction. We can't say anything about the injunction. It goes down in the court papers as completely anonymous, so you can't search for the name Trafigura. 
And this is really just about embarrassment. It's, it's, there's no great legal principle here. The, the, the company didn't want the world to know that they were clamping down on newspapers. It was embarrassing for them, but, but the courts shouldn't be so spineless as to agree to these super injunctions. Alan Rushbridger. Well, the legal ban on reporting parliamentary proceedings appeared to call into question guarantees of free speech established under the 1688 Bill of Rights. At Westminster yesterday, MPs tried to get an emergency debate. Uh, point of order, Mr Paul Farrelly. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I want to raise a point of order regarding a chain of events which may be of uh, some concern to the House. Today, The Guardian reported that it had been prevented from reporting a written question tabled by a Member of Parliament. This morning I telephoned The Guardian to ask whether that MP was uh, myself. The question was printed on the order paper yesterday and relates to the activities of Trafigura, an international oil trader at the centre of a controversy concerning toxic waste dumping in the Ivory Coast. The question also relates to the role of its solicitors Carter Ruck. Yesterday, Mr Speaker, I understand that Carter Ruck, quite astonishingly, warned the newspaper of legal action if The Guardian reported my question. Mr Speaker, in view of the seriousness of this, will you accept representations from me over this matter and consider whether Carter Ruck's behaviour constitutes potential contempt of Parliament? In a moment. Can I say to the Honourable Gentleman, first of all, I think he's just made representations. I'm grateful to him both for his point of order and for courteously giving me advance notice of it. A written question has indeed been tabled, as the Honourable Gentleman said, by the Honourable Member himself. It is not sub judice under the House's rules. It has already been published on the notices of questions, and it is also available on the order paper and indeed on the parliamentary website. There is no question of our own proceedings being in any way inhibited. If the Honourable Member wants to pursue this as a matter of privilege, there is, of course, as he will doubtless know, an established procedure of raising it with me in writing. Furthermore, I now understand that an injunction is no longer being sought. I hope that that reply is helpful both to the Honourable Gentleman and indeed to the House. There were also questions from David Davis from the Tories and from David Heath, the Liberal Democrats' parliamentary spokesman. He wants the Speaker to ask Justice Secretary Jack Straw for a statement. Well, I think it's a, it's a pretty long-established principle, really, which is, first of all, that the House of Commons can debate exactly what it wishes to do uh, without fear of interference from people outside the House. That's the, the privilege which uh, was conferred by the Bill of Rights way back in 1688. But since then, uh, and very importantly, that the public also have a right to know what is being said in the House of Commons. And that was something that was fought long and hard for in the, in the uh, uh, 19th century, uh, Wilkes and Liberty and all that, and uh, I don't want to see us go into reverse on that by the use of injunctions or contempt of court proceedings, which actually fetter the opportunity of the press to report parliamentary proceedings properly. And what action would you now like the government to consider? Well, I think we've got to look at this on a number of fronts. I mean, first of all, there's the, the, the parliamentary um, position. We need to look at the um, way in which we protect the interests of not so much of Parliament, because that sounds very pompous, but of, of, of the way people outside Parliament uh, can hear what we have to say and can ensure that matters which are of importance are raised properly. Uh, the second issue, I think, is this whole business of uh, the 
injunction in advance of, uh, of reported material, which I think has, has grown inexorably over the last uh, uh, few years, where we have these super injunctions which prevent not only the reporting of material, but also the reporting of the fact that the injunction is in place and uh, who is involved in the legal proceedings. Now, I think that this needs control, and I think this is something that the uh, Department of Justice is going to have to look at uh, very seriously and see whether the courts are properly interpreting it and whether there isn't a, a case for at least better defining uh, the, the opportunities for freedom of speech and, the, and ensuring that they're not prevented in an unwarranted way. And what's your sense of uh, the likelihood of, of such action being taken? Well, I, I thought it was um, very interesting that uh, uh, obviously we had um, Paul Farrelly, who was uh, the person at the uh, at the start of the proceedings with the with his question uh, raising an issue. My I uh, weighed in. Um, we had David Davis, uh, conservative backbencher, but uh, still a man of some influence in the Conservative Party, uh, saying the same thing. And uh, I. I strongly suspect, actually, that there may be, well be some sympathy uh, on the part of uh, someone like Jack Straw, who understands what Parliament's about, um, and uh, may wish to take this issue up as well. So, so I'm, I'm hopeful that we will have a chance of, of first of all, discussing it, but, but, but something emerging from that discussion, and certainly I shall do whatever I can on behalf of the Liberal Democrats to make sure that happens. David Heath, where does all this leave the Guardian's attempts to report on Trafigura's activities? The Guardian's investigations editor David Lee has been looking at the company's dumping of toxic waste in Ivory Coast. It's quite amazing that these gagging injunctions should now have reached a sort of pinnacle of absurdity in which law firms are trying to prevent the media from reporting Parliament because reporting Parliament is fundamental to the English political system. And the question was in the public domain in the sense that it was on the House of Commons website. Of course, and that's when it's published in the parliamentary papers. It then becomes part of the public domain. It becomes part of the proceedings of Parliament. And it wasn't just the question itself that we couldn't report, was it? We couldn't report the question because the question revealed the existence of an injunction. And the injunction which Trafigura, the oil traders, had got against the Guardian, they had demanded of a judge that the very fact of that injunction be itself kept secret. And as a result, uh, we were in a position where we couldn't tell people either what the injunction was about or indeed that we had been injuncted. And then it would appear that Carterac, the lawyers, wanted us to be prevented from reporting what people said in Parliament about this injunction. What do you make of the role of social media in, in bringing about this reversal by Carterac? It was quite entertaining and extraordinary that there was this sort of Twitter tsunami. When The Guardian published the information that we weren't allowed to report Parliament, suddenly uh, the, the, the online world went berserk. And we, we found that there were like literally hundreds, if not thousands of tweets and, and, and bloggers as well were all putting this out there. They were actually reproducing the, uh, the, the question that was at the centre of it all. And, and the tweets were all uh, putting it out or linking to it. And the extraordinary thing really was that as a result of this, the bad publicity that this firm and its lawyers got was terrible, much worse than if they had never tried to stop it coming out. Now, the solicitors, Carter Ruck, have backed down, um, but that doesn't actually create a legal precedent, does it? So there's no reason that a judge couldn't impose a similar super injunction on The Guardian or another media organisation in the future. 
Well, of course, we were going to go to court and we were going to get some ruling from a judge yesterday afternoon. Uh, and because uh, Carteret backed down, then it's never come to court. And there's never been any appeal court ruling on this. And what is happening, in fact, is that these super injunctions, as they're called, in which the very fact of the injunction is kept secret, they're spreading a bit like fungus. And I'm afraid it's the judges who are to blame because they are casually granting applications by law firms like Carteruck on behalf not of individuals who are having their privacy invaded or blackmail cases or anything like that, but in this case, certainly on behalf of a large corporation. David Lee. Well, the words Trafigura, Carter Ruck and Guardian were all trending topics on Twitter yesterday as thousands of users on the microblogging site discussed the gagging order. Our technology editor is Charles Arthur. The internet roots around censorship is a a quote from uh, John Gilmore, I believe. Um, And he uh, suggests that this is the way the internet works, is that when you put something in its way, it's built to flow around it rather like a a river around a stone. And it's an example of the Streisand effect. Can you explain to us what that is? The Streisand effect uh, is named after Barbara Streisand, who wanted to stop pictures of her beachfront home and beach in California from being published online. Um, The trouble was that every effort she made to keep these pictures secret actually resulted in more people going and looking at them, making copies of them, showing them to their friends and saying, hey, look, it's Barbara Streisand's house. And the effect of this injunction was actually not at all to quiet and, uh, and, and douse down conversation about the topic, it was to have exactly the opposite effect. Charles Arthur. And there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk. Also on The Guardian's website today... I'm Andy Petragic. I'm head of travel at Guardian News and Media. There's a UK feel to the uh, travel site today. We're hoping that the Met Office has got it right with its predictions of uh, barbecue autumn this time. Um, London has always seemed to be in a hurry, and uh, to prove the point, there's now a city jogging sightseeing tour. We've got an audio slideshow of a cultural jog through Regent's Park via the canal and down to Little Venice and Camden Lock. If you're not feeling that energetic, you can head to Bristol, home of Banksy, Wallace and Gromit, and the pie. Pie Minster makes famous pies, and the city's really good for food. We show you the best places to eat there for under a tenner. And you can find all that at uh, guardian.co.uk forward slash travel. My name's John Dennis. Coming up in Guardian Daily, the role of justice in the modern world. Philosopher Michael Sandel on how it applied to last year's bailout of the banking system. It was said at the time... Fairness is off the table. We can't worry about that. We have to save the system from collapse. But fairness is never finally off the table. But first, the Australian government will release guidelines next week recommending that children under the age of two shouldn't watch television. Patrick Barkham has been finding out why. Well, it's um, the Australian government's acting on all kinds of research, particularly research coming from America, which does suggest that children under two um, can be really adversely affected by exposure to too much television, even if it's on as background sound, you know, uh, broadcasting adult programmes to, to parents. 
um, children are, uh, have been shown under scientific tests to then um, apply less application and sort of less concentration to tasks. They, 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 they play for less long and they acquire those sort of early learning skills um, less easily if, if television's there as a distraction. Well, a lot of parents uh, will be dismayed to hear this. I mean, a lot of parents use television to occupy their children while they get on with housework or whatever. I mean, what's been the reaction to this? There has been a lot of interesting sort of reaction in Australia and a lot of it is get the government out of our living rooms, you know, this is our own business and there's the sort of subtext to a lot of parental reaction is that they admit that they feel a little guilty about using the telly as a babysitter or as a childminder or a pacifier but that it's it's so ubiquitous that what else can they do and they're very time poor and so on. What happens elsewhere in the world? France has has done something quite interesting and and acted more radically than Australia where it's only guidelines in Australia it's it's pretty cautious really but France has actually um, gone out and um, banned broadcasters from broadcasting specifically for under three so they can't produce the sort of programs like the Teletubbies you know that, that are targeted at very young children um, but elsewhere I mean in, in, in Britain for example our, our government says it doesn't issue any guidelines on what's appropriate or not for under twos with regards to watching telly they're very cautious of making any statement on this because it's seen as a vote loser because um, because parents we're all attached to television is there any evidence that older children are adversely affected by telly there's a lot of um, different evidence piling up, particularly again um, in America where more work's been done about things like the influence of television on whether children start smoking or not and whether they become sexually active at an earlier age or not if they're watching adult television. But um, the researchers who I spoke to in America are, are particularly keen to stress the impact of television on the under twos. And um, they say that... the one of the reasons why, why parents are reluctant to sort of accept the growing weight of scientific evidence is because we all feel quite nostalgic about our own childhood experiences of television. And um, Dr Michael Rich, who I spoke to in, in, in Boston at Harvard University there, says that in many cases this fails to acknowledge that TV's radically different today than it, than it was 20 years ago. Um, editing's carried out much faster, it's much more colourful, and it's much more ubiquitous, where once we had TVs in our living rooms, we now carry them around in our pockets. Patrick Barker. The philosopher Michael Sandel's book Justice shows how common sense notions of justice, what's fair, what's right and wrong, apply to the problems facing the modern world. He told Aditya Chakraborty, who hosts our business podcast, how a sense of injustice informed our reaction to the global financial crisis. One of the questions in the debates about bonuses and the bailouts generally was an argument in the name of the general welfare. Yes, it may seem unfair. It was argued these are wealthy financial institutions. They made reckless gambles. But if we don't bail them out, and if we don't allow their bonuses, then everyone will suffer. The financial system will melt down and crash on the heads of everyone, including ordinary citizens. That was the main argument, both for the bailouts and for permitting the bonuses. So it was an argument in the name of the general welfare. In the end, politicians in the U.S. and the U.K. accepted that argument and enacted the bailouts. But there was, I think there still is, 
a sense of anger and outrage that is rooted in a sense of injustice. Many people feel, and I think it's a legitimate complaint, that these bankers and executives of investment firms were getting something they didn't deserve. Now, that's an issue of justice. goes back, I suppose, in a way to Aristotle. What do people deserve? Here, people were given something they didn't deserve, a subsidy for their banks, because, in a way, the rest of the economy was held hostage to their activities, their bad judgment, their greed in some cases. It was said at the time, fairness is off the table. We can't worry about that. We have to save the system from collapse. But fairness is never finally off the table. I think the lingering outrage is expressed in many ways. In the U.S. healthcare debate, there were town hall meetings over the summer that were brimming with anger and outrage, nominally about health care, but more broadly, I think, about the role of government, I think, lingering outrage over the bonuses and, and the bailouts. And in the U.K., of course, you have the expenses scandal, which has touched a nerve. People are terribly angry about it, I think, for reasons that go beyond the actual MPs' expenditures on, on dubious uh, items for their own benefit. I think it touched a nerve that has to do with the sense that our politics is not going well, our democracy is not accountable. I think it's connected to this underlying idea that justice is a matter of who deserves what. It isn't only a matter of how to promote the, the GDP. Can you give us a couple of principles that you would want to inject into the debate? I would say that if we have to make a concession and allow bonuses for the sake of incentives that will uh, serve the general welfare. First of all, we have to examine whether that's true, empirically. But if a plausible case can be made for it, the question of fairness still has to be answered. So if one of the most egregious aspects of the bonuses and of the bailouts is that the gains in the good times were privatized, whereas the losses are socialized. That's unfair. So somehow the political and economic system has to register and remedy that unfairness. One can do it through the tax system, whether through inheritance taxes or more targeted taxes to, uh, to the financial industry. One can impose fees and taxes to support stronger regulation so that the firms themselves and the investors themselves are paying in advance into an insurance pool that will cover the losses and the risks if things go, go bad in the future. And broader questions about the uh, distribution of income and wealth, I think, should be put front and center in political debate as a way of registering the fact that there was a bailout and there have been bonuses subsidized by taxpayer funds, and there should be way, some way in which the, the political and economic system makes compensation for that. I think we should be debating what form that compensation to the taxpayer, to the public, should take. I don't have a single clear solution, but whether it's through the tax system or in some other way, uh, I, I don't think we should simply let it rest with the utilitarian argument that we had to bail them out.
Michael Sandel. And there's more of that interview on our business podcast at guardian.co.uk slash audio. And his book, Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do, is published by Alan Lane. Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe with the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. I'm John Dennis. Thanks for listening. Thank you.